Fig Jam presents Word on the Street, a podcast series designed to promote resiliency by listening to powerful stories told by women around the globe. Fig Jam would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on which we're meeting and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Fig Jam podcast Word on the Street series. Today we're joined by Tarika Hart, who is a teacher and social worker and art therapist. Um, welcome, Tarika. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Um, today we're going to be talking all things education, social work, and integrating trauma-informed practice across both of those fields. Tarika has a really huge experience skill set in um, meeting needs of children and young people in an education setting and also supporting teachers in how to properly influence that sort of realm of concepts. So Tarika, did I miss anything there? Does that kind of encompass what you do? Yeah, that's great. That's a great introduction. (laughs) Perfect. Awesome. So tell me then, what makes you so passionate about this idea of trauma embedding in education? Why does it need to exist? Um, Clarity is kindness, Brene Brown says. So I believe that unless we understand what's happening in children's lives, it's really, really difficult to be able to teach them. And because trauma affects kids' ability to learn Mm. and socially relate, so many things, it it impacts on them. So if teachers don't have an awareness of how trauma impacts children, then it's very difficult for them to get the objective done, which is for them to get literate and nu- and have numeracy and get along with the other kids in the classroom. Yeah, and have the outcomes. So what are some of the ways that you see trauma having an impact in the classroom? Um, teachers normally notice it in probably two extreme behaviours. One is an externalised behaviour. A kid might be very angry or upset might be violent to other children, throw chairs around the classroom, behaviours that extreme. And then on the other extreme, children who are withdrawn, who are tired, they've got their head on the desk, they might be low mood or crying and um, all very withdrawn and, and not able to develop a relationship. And teachers are generally pretty good relationship makers. You know, they, they encourage kids to participate and to do their best and want to bring out their best. So when they're faced with kids with these really extreme behaviors, it's very difficult for them to understand where is this coming from. Yeah, and so how do you find a lot of teachers that you work with like cope with that sort of stuff? Um, in the past, I've worked at a state high school mm-hmm. where, where you know, te- teachers who were teaching particularly EALD, English as an additional or second language to refugee kids, they were often very sensitive and understanding and sometimes would develop, you know, quite close relationships with the kids. So the kids would disclose things that were going on and teachers over time became, you know, aware that there was a lot to meet the objectives. Um, And then I guess what your supports are. So, So like that was kind of where your brainchild came from, wasn't it? Yeah, so I worked with um, two other colleagues to create a trauma-informed pedagogy um, three-day professional development for the staff. 
and one of my colleagues was a psychologist and the other one was um, a deputy principal at the time, but she had been a hoses and had done her masters of education in guidance. So there were two others who really could see that behavior did not necessarily mean a naughty kid. You know, mm -hmm. misbehavior doesn't mean a naughty kid. It usually means that the kid is um, making a cry for help. Um, so, so, you know, the system, the education system is generally punitive mm -hmm. because we don't have supports in place to enable children to recover from trauma in yeah. school. And there are, you know, it's just a, a huge topic because a lot of parents aren't getting the help they need to recover from trauma and then it's passed on to other children or kids who are coming from refugee backgrounds they've experienced un, un, unthinkable things. And, you know, the everyday teacher in Australia has not experienced that. So they're meeting a child in the classroom. They're wondering why this child has unexpected behaviours. And uh, our job was to try and help the teachers understand, well, these kids might have come from something that you can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know for, like, my own personal experience, I know we've, we've chatted about this previously, but... Um, when I did my education qualification, I really felt that there wasn't a lot of support around understanding that either from a formalised learning perspective. So as a graduate teacher, myself and a lot of colleagues left university not really having any idea of if we had kids who'd experienced trauma in our classroom, how we were going to manage that. Um, which I think is a huge gap in our system, both from a like a health perspective, but also from an educating teacher's perspective too. Yeah, the, there's, there, this space is opening up. So um, at QUT, they're offering a Masters of Education uh, Trauma-Aware Pedagogy. So Amazing. things are change, changing, yeah. And um, I think the University of... Southern Queensland. Yeah. They're also, they have experts there who are also um, planning on training as well. Awesome. So things are changing and there is a, every second year, there's a trauma aware pedic, uh, teachers conference. So things are, are definitely changing and it's led by, you know, some very strong advocates in America mm. who work within the, um, political system as well to get it through the Senate that this is really important and funding for schools and yeah so America definitely is uh, a strong leader in this area. In what way is it just because they often have more um, focused research or I guess what I'm kind of getting at why do you think Australia is so behind? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily think we're behind. It's just America just has a big population. And mm. there was a, a, a very big study done on um, obesity in America, and they had 17,000 participants, which is a huge study. It was over a long period of time. And out of that study came the ACEs or Adverse Childhood Experiences. Yes. And this gave so much um, awareness to trauma being at the core of the inability of people to change behaviors so those obese people were given um, structures and exercise and diet and asked 
you know, people to apply this and help improve their health. And then the people came back and said, oh, we can't follow this. And then, and then the researchers inquired, well, why is that? And then when they started to dig deeper, they realized that there were a multiplic multiplicity of um, childhood, um, adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, at the core of trauma-informed practice, whether you're a therapist, a social worker, or a psychologist, or a teacher, or a healthcare professional, if you understand the impact of adverse childhood experiences, the more that a child has, um, the less promising the outcomes are. Um, yeah, especially in those first five years, they're the crucial developmental years where, you know, secure attachment is formed and um, a sense of the world, safety in the world. So, Absolutely. And um, the ACES study I've heard, it's if you have more than three, is it, of the 10 in, the, in your childhood, that's where it starts to get really impact on your adult life as far as your health statistics go. Yeah, it affects everything, um, <laughs> health, mental health, um, addiction, yeah lots and lots of things so for you um as a professional do you have a particular experience or story where perhaps um maybe trauma from practice was implemented really well and that was really um well done or even one where you feel like it didn't go so well and maybe that's what inspired you in this direction oh well my first year of social work practice was in hong kong and it was a drop-in center for refugees uh, and I was working with the most vulnerable women um, and in the refugee experiences that border crossings for women usually equals um, rape so basically every woman that I worked with although they weren't all border crossings but there was a lot of political um, abuse and um, women that I worked with were hurt by officials so um, that was really, really difficult. And it, because it was a drop-in centre, there was a lot of chaos. And that really impacted on all of the workers there because we were operating out of a very high level of fight, uh, fight flight, freeze. You know, we were hyper-aroused all the time because we didn't know who was going to come in the door next. And we had a lot of very volatile and vulnerable people that we were working with. And you needed to be ready for anything. <laughs> yeah. So it worked quite well for the clients in that they could drop in and they knew that it was a safe place. Um, we did have regular programs as well, like uh, English lessons and other things to engage the clients. Awesome. But the self-care and you know that focus on the well-being of the staff mm. may not have been completely recognized by the you know manager at the time and we were lucky enough to have a very good supervisor there she was a clinical clinical psychologist and had worked uh, for many years like 15 years in the sexual abuse sector in India so she was an incredibly experienced person but um, the overall well-being of the staff wasn't a priority. Yeah. And the, the really yeah, and the organization was 
um, not a social work organization was um, providing care, but not run by social workers. So I could really understand that the mothership organization didn't value um, the impacts on the workers. Yeah. And maybe you weren't even aware of the impacts to the. Oh, no, the, the, the leader of the organization was totally, almost totally um, unaware of. Yeah. Yeah. That's because all. I think until you work in the industry, sometimes that idea of vicarious trauma is really hard to wrap your head around. Because um, sometimes it is a little bit warped, that concept that you can take on other people's emotions that you work with as a professional. That's sometimes a little hard for people outside of the social work sector to get, um, understand what that is. Um, so I guess... Very difficult. Um, there's a play therapist called Lisa Dion, and she has done a lot of neuroscience research and mapping with her uh, clients. She works with children mostly, yeah. And she said, we lend our nervous system to our clients. Mm. So that is a really good visual of what we're doing every day with clients. Yeah, that's and, a really, really great analogy. Yeah, and so she's really big on the self-regulation of her, the therapist that she works with uh, and encourages them to take a break after each, after each client and to reset the nervous system so that there's no long term um, disrepair. Mm. And I guess the types of people who would be in um, usually the teaching social work type professions are normally the people who just give and give and give and give and give until we see burnout. Yeah. Um, so that is such a useful analogy to keep in mind. Yeah, it's so helpful. When I heard that, it was like, oh, yes, thank you, Lisa Dion. I'm never <laughs> going to forget this. Um, yeah, and she, she helps. Um, she teaches a lot. So she, um, there's a lot of information out there, a lot of podcasts that she offers. And it makes a lot of sense because she's also working with children and um, she also has this thing that she says to children who are act like, um, when, when, uh, she wrote a book called um, Aggression in Play Therapy and she discussed things that nobody else has really talked about. So when children get really physical in, in a session because they're trying to... Um, manage really big emotions and they feel safe enough to express them however it's not always safe for the therapist yeah so she asks them to show her another way and um this statement show me another way is something that if teachers teachers could take into their repertoire of mantra in the classroom, if a child throws a chair across the other, other side of the room, can you show me another way what's going on inside of you? Mm. And it adopts so many things about giving power and control back to the child to be able to communicate what's actually happening for them. It embraces a whole bunch of those trauma principles around um, realigning that locus of control and, and making them feel like what they've done is still like that they're the one that we're interested in and separating the behavior from the child. Yeah. 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 But teachers have got so much on that, you know, we need other ways mm. so that in schools, if children have unexpected behaviors, 
that there's a support team for that child and that there are um, pathways for them to get the help they need, for their family to get the help they need. And fortunately, there's been an acknowledgement of the impact of domestic violence here in Australia. Yes. And, you know, there's a big investment in helping more. Yeah. So I think over time we are going in the right direction where the problem has been acknowledged, Absolutely. the skeleton is out of the cupboard, um, and people who are working with children in schools, children in therapy, children in the medical space are going to be more and more trauma aware. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. And, you know, obviously just having discussions like this and people listening and increasing their understanding, uh, this is really going to help. Spread that awareness around. Yeah. So for you, what do you find in your work or personally is one of the biggest challenges or hurdles that you've experienced so far working within this concept and structure? Um, the shifting paradigm, helping people understand that, you know, they're not bad kids, that it's a cry for help. So helping professionals understand that there are other ways to work with children than suspension, expulsion or exclusion. And there are other ways to react. There are, there are ways to respond to kids that are going to reduce the uh, escalation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the responsibility is actually the teacher. Mm -hmm or the professional because they are the regulator and children can't regulate themselves. That's why they need parents. That's why they need, you know, an extended family so that they keep getting a feedback loop of if I'm upset, there's an adult here to help me. If I'm um, angry, there's somebody to help me manage those emotions and calm down when I'm able to and then later on have a discussion about this and the people who are around me will not hate me for that yeah they will continue to love me and help me manage this until i can do it on my own and if children have got trauma histories then they're probably not developmentally the same age as their body yes so just increasing people's awareness of this you might have a 13 year old who looks like a 16 year old but he's got the developmental age of a four or five year old because of, you know, some trauma history. So children are unusual, you know, it's not, it's not often that kids are their developmental age, their chronological age and their developmental age, you know, it's not always the same. Yeah. And it's so refreshing to hear that um, that there is some movement in this space where there seems to be more programs and um opportunities for that awareness to start being generated because as a social worker and a teacher that is something absolutely that I find really um, was a huge gap when I went through my study of um, that there's just nothing to support a the teachers which means that b we're getting like challenging outcomes for the young people if they're not being responded to appropriately so it's really nice to hear that that um, hurdle you described does have some shift happening um, in the near future. So um, great to hear. 
So for you, what would be one of your biggest learnings um, that added to like your strengths, I guess, in this, in this process? Is it, is it around that shifting the paradigm and how you do that? Or is it, is there something else that you think is really your key learning in this, in this space? Well, I, because even in social work, I, I didn't have any specific trauma training. Mm. I um, you know, I was trained how to do interviews or assessments and, you know, we practiced that. We developed programs in theory with troubled people, you know, like we chose a group of young people and we targeted that group and we developed a theoretical program. But when I went out into the field, I didn't know really what to do with a dissociative person. Yeah or a person who had complex trauma or mm. complex grief. I might've read about these things, but you know, I didn't have much experience. So it wasn't until I did a um, hundred hour training with uh, a social worker who's like a clinical person in um, called Babette Rothschild. Mm. Um, and she um, provided a, a trauma training here in Australia in person. Although, um, yeah, she's quite an elderly person now, but she's had a lifetime of experience working in trauma and that somatic awareness. Mm. And um, she taught us how to put the brakes on. So if somebody's disclosing, but you don't think that they're regulated, you help them to say, let's take a break and take a step back. And, you know, I'm here for you and let's think about something that's not distressing. Yeah. And, and that training of how to help people stay regulated, even though they're, they're managing a lot of really strong emotions, uh, was, was a great learning for me. And, um, yeah, learning from really experienced trauma professionals is very very helpful yeah and that purposeful learning and, and reinforcing that what you should be doing practically because i yeah. do find that also that a lot of our um our context that we work in and we study don't give us practical skills to transfer over into the field um yeah. but yeah no absolutely so i guess for those people listening, or I guess, what is your, I'm more interested, I think, at the moment to know what's your hopes for the industry? Where where do you hope that it ends up? We have some movement happening already, but projected into the future, what do you hope? Um, well, my hope is that teachers who are working with kids from challenging backgrounds mm -hmm. or trauma backgrounds like refugees or kids who've experienced domestic violence, that those teachers are facilitated to get clinical supervision like we do as social workers or psychologists do therapists do we have regular supervision and that means there's an opportunity to debrief critical incidences if that's a word <laughs> critical moments um, and they get an opportunity to discuss systemic problems because working in um, working for the Department of Education can be highly complex and, um, you know, it's, it's moved towards more of education corporation rather than an education 
in, you know, education for education. Yeah, I don't and, think it's isolated to just Department of Education. It's a lot of the departments around the place. Yeah, but, you know, teachers are working in a context where they're highly trained, mm-hmm. usually very intelligent, um, quite um, social, uh, quite emotionally intelligent, and there are barriers to them sharing their informed opinions. Yeah. So having that opportunity to debrief to somebody who's um, not involved in the system mm-hmm. so that they can feel that it's um, a genuine opportunity to just get things off their chest mm-hmm. without any repercussions within their department, their, their, with their supervisor, you know, having that um, neutrality yeah. and, and an opportunity to work on ways to position themselves in their role. So I work with one teacher at the moment having supervision every week. She works with, you know, kids from trauma backgrounds. And so sometimes she's carrying the burden of Mm -hmm. these children who um, have experienced things that we can't imagine. And there are also things that have been perpetrated by um, systems and they're in a system that can't support all of their needs as well. So just to be able to remember her role as a, as a teacher and that there are other supports around those children and mm-hmm. she doesn't need to take it home at night. She doesn't need to, you know, to harbour it in her heart, yeah. even, even though that's quite a natural thing to do. But, you know, be, to be able to talk to somebody about it and put things into perspective of how much control and how much can we do for another human being. And because as a social worker and a therapist, I'm trained and, you know, experience has enabled me to develop a faith in, in the coping of the children as well, or young people, because they've been through the, when I see a refugee young person or older person, I know that more or less they've been through the hardest thing they've ever been through outside of our country. Yes, absolutely. Fingers crossed anyway. Um, look, we hope so. It's not going to yeah. get, hopefully here is the, the safe zone, right? Yes. So I know the systems don't always serve them, but there are a lot of supports here that aren't in other countries. So I know that the children have experienced the worst in another place and now they're safer but a teacher might not have that awareness and so that there's this huge burden of care and um you know sometimes it can be overwhelming for someone without the the social work training yeah so it's it's just a great i think it would be great if it could be adopted by schools with high numbers of young people in care or you know, from other trauma backgrounds, that the teachers who are exposed to the most um, challenging students or the students with the most challenging behavior, mm. um, most challenging backgrounds, yeah. that they can get support so they have a long life as a teacher. Yeah, absolutely, because burnout's huge in the education profession. Yeah, it's it's very high, and especially in the first five years, it's it's quite challenging. Um, especially because 
we only get, I don't know how many lessons of behavior management I got when I was at uni, but it wasn't very much. I got my degree. (laughs) There was a lot to read, but there was a lot to read. And um, I didn't know how to prioritize learning about behavior management. And yeah, so I'm hoping that with clinical supervision, teachers would be able to have a more balanced personal life and um, to feel safe. And then, you know, if necessary, there are channels that clinical supervisors could have to discuss, you know, common um, problems that teachers are facing and that we could actually enable the system to change in order to support teachers more. And in supporting teachers, we're supporting the students. Yeah, absolutely. Wherever the teacher well-being is invested in, it has a very clear um, impact on improving outcomes for young people. Mm. That's such a great hope for the industry. <laughs> so I'm like, if that could get there, it would be incredible. Um, I, I have talked to, I don't know if you want to add this, but I have talked to the teachers union about getting um tax breaks for teachers like we do with our supervision yeah so if it could be um a plus minus situation where teachers are able to get a tax deduction for supervision that would mean that a lot of them would take it take responsibility for that themselves even if their school wasn't able to provide it mm-hmm. and external supervisors yeah mm-hmm. That's an excellent idea. So I guess my final question for you, which kind of springboards off that a little bit, is if you had five five pieces of advice for teachers in classrooms with trauma backgrounds, what would you say? And I'm going to guess that number one is going to be um, investigate professional supervision. <laughs> well, I think the number one would be that the behaviour is always a call for help. Yes. And the next one would be, be curious. Mm. Ask the child, is there some other way you can tell me what's going on? Or I'm curious about what's going on for you right now. Mm. And just giving some space to teachers and space to the children that you don't have to make an assessment in that moment of what's going on. Yeah. Unless unless somebody's unsafe, of course. Absolutely. Um, then the third one would be if your school offers, you know, elective PDs, the union actually, the teachers union, Queensland Teachers Union offers um, trauma-informed pedagogy um, training. It's excellent. Mm. The trainer has been to America and studied um, with a great trauma-informed process and really understands it from a neurobiological perspective. So um, get some training. And the last thing is if you're feeling on the edge where you wonder why am I doing this every day, get some help. Mm -hmm. Go to your doctor and ask for, you know, an assessment of mental health and uh, they can give you a referral to a psychologist you can try eap um as well i think they call it something else now optima Mm, something different in the teachers union yeah still eap for um 
social workers. Yeah. And um, just ask for some help because um, there's no shame whatsoever to getting help. And um, I personally, I've found that when I've gotten support from a therapist, that it teaches me how to hold other people. And whatever I learn in therapy um, for myself, you know, my experience of being in therapy is that I feel held. And that's what teachers are doing for students every day. They're regulating them, they're holding them, they're helping them. And it's taking a little bit back from what teachers give out every day. So be the best person you can be. And sometimes that means just asking for a little bit of help. Great. And what a wonderful list of um, descriptions for the teachers who might might be listening right now, because I think that absolutely some of those things are so practical and able to be implemented as soon as even tomorrow if um, they wanted to be. Is there anything we can do, um, listeners, me, everyone, to support your endeavours in your trauma-informed practice journey? Um, well, I'm running some small art for relaxation for teachers and guidance officers and you can just check that out art for relaxation at eventbrite i'm just doing them once a month and it's a bit of self-care i give you a few self-care tips a little bit of guided art making and some free art making kind of experience so um i'd really love to see teachers taking that up because so far i've had really supportive reviews from teachers and they've just felt like wow i can actually just be myself for a couple of hours and focus on me and i think teachers really deserve that because yeah. even though teachers get a lot of holidays a lot of that is recovery yeah. or um, one of my teacher friends said it's convalescence mm. and then the other half of the holidays is preparing for the next term so you know teachers work really really hard and I think it's not acknowledged by the general population population you know it's seen that you know teachers have heaps of holidays but they're working on weekends a lot of their hours is planning and preparation and um, it's so many unseen hours of extra work and, you know, if there really was um, a priority for self-care, the hours that are invested in marking and PD would be paid for as well. So, um, look, I think that the the shift of focus over to making sure that both we're delivering a trauma-informed care service in education to our students, as well as having that vicarious trauma awareness for teachers and making sure they're supported through that as well is such so needed in our education system right now. So I'm so very pleased that you had the time to chat with me today, Taraka. It's been incredible to hear what you're up to. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we finish up? Um, I'm working on a book. Great. And I've uh, written about nine chapters of narrative, you know, my life and uh, how I've overcome vicarious trauma because living in Hong Kong was extremely difficult and then working with extremely vulnerable people was very, very challenging and in, a, in an organisation that was also challenging. Uh, so I, you know, talk about what precipitated vicarious trauma and I think a lot of people will be able to understand how vicarious trauma can happen when you see someone else's journey and maybe identify some parts of that 
and I've uh, interviewed nine people for the book as well. I've just got one interview left in my my last interview, which is very elusive. And um, <laughs> so now I'm just building up uh, uh, resources for each chapter. So recommended activities to do, um, practices, and what's helped me in those times, what helped me get through the difficulties. Yeah, because life is not easy. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just have it even harder. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we want to support people in understanding what the beast is, you know, and um, it doesn't mean that you're a weak person just because you face something very challenging like vicarious trauma or you feel burnt out. It's actually because you care. Yeah. It shows, it shows a huge capacity to care, yeah. Yeah, and if you didn't have those symptoms, like, and, like if you're working in those environments, questions might start being asked about whether or not you really are investing as much as you could be in those contexts, I guess, because uh, I've often noticed that people who don't commit as much um, tend to avoid the vicarious trauma side of things. Hmm. Well, maybe avoidance is a, is a exactly. you know, it could be an attachment style. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Going to a whole other ball game right there. <laughs> so we can leave it there, but... Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Excited to hear about your book. Um, do you have an expected date of publication? Oh, uh, not yet. But uh, yeah, but once I get the last interview out of the work, uh, out of the way, it'll be easier to keep in flow. But okay. hopefully, hopefully in the beginning of next year. Yeah. Excellent. Well, make sure you keep us updated and we will make sure that that is shared around so that um, everyone is aware of what you're up to as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. If you want any more about Fig Jam, Word on the Street podcasts, um, just check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and Podbean. In the meantime, you can give us a follow on Instagram at Fig Jam Oz or follow Taraka. It's Taraka Heart is your Instagram handle. Fabulous. Thanks for listening, everyone. And... We'll chat again soon.